Like the office they commemorate, presidential libraries are living institutions. Certainly it is my hope that the Reagan Library will become a dynamic intellectual forum where scholars interpret the past and policymakers debate the future. Welcome to a Reagan Forum, hosted by the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute. The Center for Public Affairs offers lectures and forums presenting perspectives on important public policy issues of the day from politicians, authors, members of the media, business and military leaders, and more. As part of our Auschwitz Not Long Ago, Not Far Away exhibit, the Reagan Foundation has been hosting authors whose books cover the atrocities of the Holocaust, mainly told through survivors' eyes. In this week's Reagan Forum podcast, we go back to our in-person event with Audrey Birnbaum, who shares with us the story of her father and his time growing up amidst the rubble and anti-Semitism of war-torn Nazi Berlin in her latest book, American Wolf, From Nazi Refugee to American Spy. During this program, Audrey sat down in conversation with Reagan Foundation and Institute Chief Marketing Officer Melissa Giller to discuss American Wolf, which is an electrifying true account brimming with last-minute rescues and life-and-death struggles that defy the impossible. They discuss how the book is not just a tale of survival, but a profound coming-of-age story, delving into the complexities of family dynamics and the search for national identity. Let's listen. So thank you so much for joining us this evening. We're very excited to have you here. Melissa, and, thank you so much yeah. for having me. And what a great program. Um, really, we took a wonderful tour. It was amazing. I'm glad you got to see it. Um, so let's start at the beginning. Um, how old? So this book, for those of you who don't know, we just sort of talked about it in the introduction, um, but it's really specifically about her father. So how old were you when you learned of your father's story? I feel like I always knew my father's story. It's hard to put a date on it. I know some of your other speakers have said the same thing. Um, we grew up with my father's stories. Um, they felt sometimes like adventure tales. So he would say, you know, how he escaped. He was on the last ship out of uh, Europe to get to America. He was on almost the last train out of Germany. Um, and he talked about it so often, and it was almost as if, um, yeah, again, like an adventure story, the way somebody would say, I fought a bear and I survived. <laughs> you know, it had this, uh, it, it had that kind of uh, it, like an action mm -hmm. uh, story. At the same time, we also, um, on a sort of a, a more somber note, we were inundated with um, documentaries of uh, Holocaust from very, very early ages. If it was on PBS, we were, we were watching it. Um, when we were way too young, really, to watch such things, you know, you would, you know, mass graves and emaciated people. Um, and, you know, I, I always say when my friends were watching The Brady Bunch, we were watching what they call Showa, Showa documentaries yeah. uh, at a very early age, which, you know, I, I think was, I re now realize was not normal. <laughs> uh, um, so I mentioned in the introduction um, that most of our events are regarding peoples who either themselves or their family members survived the camps, and your family were fortunate enough to escape. Why did you find it, or why did you think it was important, feel it was important to share this story? Yes, well, you know, we, as I mentioned, we talked about it when we were young, mm -hmm. and then we sort of stopped talking about it as if, well, we already knew it, mm -hmm. so therefore there's no reason to, to mention it. And then uh, my father uh, died in 2018, really almost to the day, uh, it was on January 9th, mm -hmm. um, and my sister and I were, um, 
trying to remember all the details of, of the stories and because we had to write his eulogy and we were thinking, oh, my, my sister was like, oh yeah, he took a boat out of Spain and I was like, oh no, no, I think he took a boat out of Portugal and mm -hmm. we embarrassingly realized that we just didn't really know like all the, all the details about it. And um, we uncovered uh, some written notes that my father had taken years before um, that he had transcribed in vivid detail about his life story. And we, uh, he had written them when he retired. Um, it had been maybe 13, 15 years before. And we pulled that out so that we could you know, tell his eulogy properly. And eventually when I uh, retired from my day job, um, I looked through those notes and found this, this story about how he had escaped. And I realized it was just an absolute treasure of, um, in it was, it, yes, it was very exciting, but it was also very emotional. Mm -hmm. I started to realize how many losses he had stacked up. And I realized that this was also a story that hadn't been told. Mm -hmm. Because as you mentioned, I think you know a lot of people here have read about the camps. And of course, those are unbelievably tragic stories. But um, his survival story was, and, and the losses that he had, and the difficulty mm -hmm. he had getting out, how close he came to ending up in the camps was just unbelievable, and, and why it was so hard to leave. And uh, it was, you know, just I, I realized this, I have not read the story, I have not seen the story on TV, mm -hmm. and I thought, you know, this was it, it was going to be my job at some point to, to tell it. And I'll ask more specific questions as we get into this about the story, um, but it, that does lead me to ask. Talk about that process. You have your father's notes or manuscript or, or whatever that might be, and now you have to turn it into a book, and I'm sure you need to fact check. And yeah. what is that process? How long does that take? It, it feels like it took half my life. Yeah. <laughs> uh, it, yeah, no, it took quite a long time because my father had written all these details, and it was it, it he had not written it in a, in the, such an emotional style. To mm -hmm. be honest, it was it was so detailed. Um, that in some places it was rather dry to read, to be honest. It was, you know, if you were remembering things from your childhood, you might say, we used to do this and we used to do that and this happened and that happened. And I think that would have been very good as like a testimony. I could have given it to the Holocaust Museum, for example, sure. and said, this is my father's testimony of what happened to him. And that would have been perfectly fine. But I really wanted it to be something that would feel really emotional. I wanted the reader to feel like they were there, mm -hmm. to feel like, to, to be in his shoes, to understand his family, which was a, a little crazy, uh, in, a, in a way that it was at sometimes amusing, in a way that sometimes explained also why they had such difficulties sometimes in, in making their transition to America. Um, I wanted them to feel the child that he was. You know, he was a child. He, you know, he was three in 1933 when Hitler came to power, and that's just when he started to be a conscious human being. Mm -hmm. And so he had maybe like two years of happy childhood and then everything started to fall apart. You know, you, you know, oh, you can't go to school. Oh, your friends abandon you. Oh, now we're taking away all the things in your apartments. Oh, now you have no heat in your house. Oh, now there's a war. I mean, I could go on and on, but there was just, you know, people leaving and all of that. So in any case, I, I, too, I decided to write in the first person because I felt that, you know, it was as authentic as I, I could be. 
And, um, and then, as you mentioned, uh, I had to fact check a lot because right. he was writing from memory. And not everything was perfectly accurate. And then I had to find out what happened to all of these people because he actually didn't know. He wrote this in maybe it was the early 90s, I think, oh, when wow. he wrote it. And uh, he didn't have access to the internet at the time. And he had family members who disappeared and he did not know what happened to them and friends who disappeared. Um, and as I fact-checked, I found family members I didn't know. I connected to a cousin who lived, shockingly, a block and a half from my son wow. in, in Chicago. <laughs> that was just a coincidence, and we, we connected. Um, but I also found out you know, who perished and where, mm -hmm. um, which was very heartbreaking for me. Um, and uh, so, yeah, there was a lot of... Um, recreating the experience so much that I felt like I was actually living the experience. Mm. And I, I really feel at times that I felt like I was my father in this weird way, that we had like merged <laughs> spirits. <laughs> and I, I was like finishing the task for him. Wow. Um, that's powerful. Before I get into questions about the book, just to finish this sort of chain of thought. So you came across the manuscript after he passed. So he didn't know you were writing the book. Do you think, do you know why he wrote this down? Do you, did, was there a hope for a book at some point? Yeah, so I only found this out actually uh, after the book was published. At, um, we had a book launch, a little party, book launch, and I invited my mother. <laughs> and my mother sat in the seat next to me, and somebody asked a question, mm -hmm. and she said, oh, yeah. She said, uh, you know, your father was diagnosed with prostate cancer, and he, it seemed to be very aggressive, and he thought he was going to die, oh. and he didn't. And he, you know, he did very well. But at that moment, he thought, "Oh my God, I better write down everything because I want my children and my mm -hmm. grandchildren to know the story of my life." And that was the motivation. Mm -hmm. And I, I really didn't know that at all. Um, but after he f finished it, he did like bind the copies up, and he gave it to. Uh, you know, the relatives and everything. And, and I, I honestly, I didn't read it at the time. Mm -hmm. I, I have to say, like, I thought, again, I thought, oh, I knew this stuff. Right. I, don't need to, I don't need to read it again. And I put it in my attic. And, um, but so he, part of it was a legacy, you know, for his children and, and grandchildren, which I am unbelievably grateful. But he did say, you know, I'd love if this was published one mm. day. <laughs> and, uh, but I really, it really, I did not think it was publishable in the form that it was, that it would be, in, enjoyable for other people to mm -hmm. read. Um, but I, my mother would egg me on every now and then. Mm -hmm. She'd be like, you know, Daddy really wanted the book to be published. <laughs> and again, when I stopped working, and, and then the pandemic too, which gave us everybody lots of time, because I stopped working and I thought I was going to, I don't know, do ballroom dancing or something. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know what I thought I was going to do. But uh, then I was like, OK, I have a lot of time on my hands. And, and it, it was a hmm. really wonderful opportunity to, to try my hand at this. Great. Okay, so let's get into yeah. the book. Yes. Um, so, of course, hindsight's twenty twenty, And yes. obviously, as they were living this, they didn't know exactly what was going to happen. But yes. as you read the book, you learn, you know, the Nuremberg laws are published. Jews are starting to lose businesses, are trying to leave Nazi yes. um, uh, Germany. And yet, 
your father's parents actually go and buy a store. Yeah, so it's a brilliant move on their right? part. They're like, why not buy a store <laughs> in Berlin when everyone else is leaving? Uh, yeah, so I have to explain this a little bit um, just to give you a little bit of background. So a lot of Jewish people who were living in Germany at the time were actually like pretty well off. They had businesses and they were doctors or lawyers. It was like Berlin was like a good place to be. My grandparents had come from West Prussia, and which had been part of the bigger Republic of Germany, and they were German speakers and they were German citizens. They were not well off at all. They were, um, they had middle school educations, and my grandmother felt that she had married beneath her. Mm -hmm. I'm sorry, I'm embarrassed to say her. My grandfather Arthur was only five feet tall. He wasn't educated. He didn't have a degree, but she was 26, and she was a little desperate. She's like, I better get married, and I don't have a dowry, and I'm going to marry this man, and we're just going to try and make something of ourselves. And so they uh, came by horse and buggy to Berlin, and they said, we're going to try and figure out a way to enter the middle class, come hell or high water. My grandmother had a bunch of cousins who were well off, and she thought she was the poor relation. And so over the course of 10 years, they struggled and saved and worked and she sewed she was a good seamstress and she sewed and she Arthur my grandfather sold bicycles because he didn't really have other skills and they just kept saving money and saving money and they were like okay we're gonna move from the east side of Berlin which is poor and then we're gonna move to the middle of Berlin mm -hmm. and we they got a, a an apartment that had a bathroom in the hallway and then they they finally finally after 10 years made it to an area of Berlin that was middle class, and they had an apartment that had a bathroom, and they were like, "We have a bathroom. This is like, this is like, we we made it. We have a bathroom. You know, this is like the best thing we could dream of." And again, that was 1933. There was a bathroom, and there was Hitler, and they're like, so. In 1935, you know, already things are getting bad. Nuremberg laws are, are there. People are leaving. Their relatives are leaving. But the relatives are leaving for a specific reason, because if you were in the civil service, you lost your job. So if you were a judge, my grandma had a cousin who was a judge. She's like, I'm sorry, I got to go. I don't have a job. I'm going to Palestine. Um, doctors, they were out of there. Actors, she had a cousin who was a famous movie actor. And all the uh, people who were in the arts, they had to go. They had lost all their jobs. But if you were a business owner, you, didn't, you still had a job. And at that point, my grandfather was a salesperson for a clothing store. And he had a job, and he was doing OK. Um, and then what happened after Nuremberg is 1936 came, and the Olympics came to Berlin. And all of a sudden, the anti-Semitic rhetoric quieted down. And the mood in Berlin was amazing. Everybody was excited. The Olympics are coming. The Olympics are coming. And people were like, the Jewish people were like, you know, it's not so bad. <laughs> you know, maybe this was a passing phase. Everything's OK. And the owner of my grandfather's clothing store, he had decided to leave and, and sail off to Argentina. And he made my grandparents an offer. They said, we're going to sell you the clothing stores, and it's really cheap. <laughs> you know? And my grandparents were like, oh my god, this will never happen to us again. We, we, we can buy a store, and we could afford it. And they thought about it, and like, should we, shouldn't we, should we, shouldn't we? And then they decided it was the time. But that got them stuck. And they're like, and now we're store owners. And, and the truth is, they didn't want to leave. 
They didn't, you know, they really, you know, they had worked so hard to make it there and they just didn't want to mm -hmm. go. And it was one of, you know, one of the few reasons, you know, why they didn't go. I mean, there were other reasons to my, my uh, I was going to say my uncle, because again, I think I'm my father, but it's my father's uncle, mm -hmm. a beloved uncle who had an iron cross for, uh, from World War One. He stayed because he was sure that his Iron Cross mm -hmm. would save him. This was a very common thing for, for people who had been in World War I. So there were quite a few people who were living in a state of hopeful denial that, um, uh, you know, that somehow it would all blow over. Right. And, um, yeah, I think those were uh, some, I think those were some of the, the sure, reasons, sure. you know. Um, and they were middle-aged. Young people, it's easier right, for them. Right. But when you're middle-aged, you know, and you've set up your life there, it's, it's a sure. lot harder. Um, so I'm sure you can yeah. all imagine, right? So they buy the store and... Times. And they have the best year, 1936, <laughs> their best year ever. Their best year ever. Right. But then things start to go bad. Yeah. Um, so your grandparents decide they need to escape. And your grandmother has a first cousin in the United States, who I think she's met once. Ten years ago, right? Ten so years she starts before, to learn yeah. English, and she reaches out to the first cousin. Yeah, uh, let's talk about that story a little bit. Yeah. So, so my grandmother had a lot of cousins. Again, maybe she was the poor relation of the cousins, but she had one that lived in America. And you, if you wanted to get to America, you had to have somebody sponsor you. That was the rule, and they had to have enough money to sponsor you. They had to prove you had to have all kinds of affidavits and things to prove that you could sponsor somebody. She didn't just look at America. She looked at uh, South America, she looked at the Caribbean, she looked at China, mm -hmm. um, but the thing that seemed safest to her was, was the U.S. So she wrote to her cousin Ellis Arndt, who owned an uh, orthotic shoe store in New York, and he had the means, and she wrote to him and said, I'm really sorry to do this to you, but I've got two kids, um, you're my only hope, uh, could you, would you do this for us? I know you only met me once 10 years ago, but I need your help desperately. We're desperate. Um, you know, it looks like the persecution is going to, you know, end up, you know, killing us all. And he said, yes, he would. And then they, and that's when she applied for a visa. And when she started traipsing back and forth and back and forth to the, uh, to the uh, consulate, the U.S. consulate in, in Berlin. And that's when she thought, okay, fine, I'll get my visa. This is fine, you know, and we'll get over it. And that's when everything started to fall apart. Um, where it didn't matter that someone was sponsoring her because it, the truth was that no one really wanted to take refugees. There was worldwide resistance to the Jewish problem. And there were quotas that were really strict. And there was a, an unknown issue with the U.S. that they were basically telling the consulates to do everything they could to really delay and postpone and really try hard to mm -hmm. keep people out. So um, for years and years, my grandmother went back and forth and back and forth to the consulate and kept getting um, told, no, no, you know what? Uh, I'm sorry, you don't have the right paperwork. Oh, you've got some health issues. Uh, 
it, you know, I don't want to go through all the details mm -hmm. because there are a lot of things, but it, 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 it took, uh, by the time they got their visas, they were already entrenched in war, and it was almost impossible to get out of Europe. That's but they didn't even get German They did not visas. get German visas, no. The very first thing that happened when they applied for the visas, they said, you're going to get a Polish visa. And my, gra my grandmother was like, what do you mean a Polish visa? I, I, I was born in Germany. I speak German. I don't speak any Polish. How am I on a Polish visa? And then the consul said, um, well, the area of Prussia that you were born in is, is now going to go to Poland because of the new borders from the Treaty of Versailles. Because that was part of the you know, humiliating war reparations that Germany had to do after the First World War was they had to give back their territories and some of their territory went to Poland. And so they changed the borders and said, well, you're considered Polish for reasons of borders. Now, the problem was that if you were of Polish background, uh, you were considered a lower class citizen because in the US, they were still operating under these racial theories that Eastern Europeans were less desirable, and they had a much lower quota for Eastern Europeans. So the likelihood of getting out on a Polish visa was much, much worse than on a German visa. So their friends who had German visas were leaving, but they on a Polish visa were going to be waiting forever and ever and ever. Um, and there were a lot more Polish Jews. There were like three million Polish Jews. Um, and so that was their first blow, is they're like, oh, holy Toledo, <laughs> we are never getting out. Um, that was just one of multiple things that, that went, uh, came their way. Right, and as you just said now, and you said in the beginning, um, this book is really, I mean, action-packed seems like a weird way to say it, but everything that could go wrong went wrong. It was Pretty not much. easy. They had to try and try and try again and uh, kept failing. Um, and I think one of the most, for me, um, interesting parts of the story, because it just showed the desperation, was your sister's part of the journey. Um, my, my father's you're, sister. Sorry, yeah. no, sorry. No, no, I, I did the same thing. I did the same like thing. A, I don't know. I remember the, the first person, you're, sort of like uh, my sister. Um, yeah. Yes. Your father's <laughs> yes. sister's um, journey, which was just crazy to me. Yeah. you want to share a little bit of that? Yeah, sure. My, uh, so my father had a sister who was uh, a nine-year senior to him. Um, uh, my aunt Anita, and while they're sitting there waiting for their American visa, and it's not coming, and it's not coming, and now we're hitting 1940, I think, 1940, and uh, his sister's about 17 or so. And um, so my father had a beloved uncle um, and aunt who had to move into Berlin. They, had, they were pretty well off, actually. They had a beautiful house in an area called Friedland, a very, like a, a villa. And, um, and it was taken away from them. And their beautiful car was taken away from them. And their bank account was frozen. This very common thing to happen. Your assets were taken away from you. So they moved into uh, Berlin. Um, and they couldn't afford the rent, so they took in a border. And the border was a um, Chinese engineering student. Uh, he was like a postdoctorate engineering student. But he was not a young man. He was about 34, 35 years old. And he became their border. And my, uh, my family uh, befriended him. And he would come over for dinner pretty regularly. And he took a liking to my father's sister. Uh, who was, again, he, she was 17. She was, she, actually, at the time they met, she was probably 
she might have been 15 at the first time when they first started meeting, and he really took a liking to her. So um, one of the obstacles that my family faced when they went to the consulate is they said, uh, we decided that uh, your cousin Ellis in America doesn't have enough money to support four of you. We're going to give you three visas, not four. And so they had to figure out which one of them was going to not make it to America. And um, they decided to sacrifice my father's sister. Uh, and so they sent her to England as a domestic. The English had a program, uh, well, I don't call it a program, but they, for about 20,000 jobs were created as domestics. And some young women went over to be maids. Um, and uh, you know, some weren't treated very well, to be honest. It was like free labor, <laughs> you know, we'll save you, but you have to clean our homes. So she went over as a domestic when she was 17. And while she was there, my family was still waiting and waiting and waiting for the visa to come through. And they, they didn't think they were going to make it to America. So they sort of hatched this plan that maybe they would make it to China. If, um, but this gentleman said, I'll get you visas to China if you, if you let me marry your daughter. And so, um, it was a, it was a bad bargain um, that my aunt was not at all happy with. Obviously, she was seventeen. She did not want to marry a man twice her age. She was not in love with him, but she also was not faring well in England at all. She had lost her job as a, a as a domestic. She had some health issues. She was too old to stay at a group home because she's not a child anymore. I think she had turned eighteen at that point. And so um, when she was pressured by my grandmother to save the family, literally, they said, save the family. It's up to you. You have to save the family. Um, you got to marry this gentleman, Ho, and, uh, and we'll all get visas for China. That's what you have to do. So that's what, that's what they did. So the plan originally was for them to go to China. And they had their tickets, and they were going to leave from Genoa, uh, Italy. and. It was going to be in June of 1940, and then uh, Italy entered the war. And so that plan was dashed, but she was still married to Ho. <laughs> so, so there she was, um, stuck in this unhappy, unwanted marriage. But that's the desperation. So they, would have, you know, they were doing everything they can, trying every angle to try to, to make their way out. And um, uh, so. And then the Blitz started over right. England, too, so she got stuck in the Blitz. More from our Reagan Forum with Audrey Birnbaum after this message. The Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation is the nonprofit organization created by President Reagan himself and specifically charged by him with continuing his legacy and sharing his principles, individual liberty, economic opportunity, global democracy, and national pride. We must remain vigilant and work together to share these conservative principles with younger generations. Your role is critical to move our mission forward. Thank you for your continued support. Please visit reaganfoundation.org give. That's reaganfoundation.org give. Now back to our Reagan Forum with Audrey Birnbaum. 
So when your father and his parents finally are told they have the proper paper, well, somewhat, I'm kind of yeah, we're making, skipping over, I'm, I'm skipping over a lot of things, but uh, we want everyone to read the book, <laughs> um, that they're going to get on a ship. There, I, th I think it's one of the last ships, right, that actually went to America. Um, can you talk about their time on the ship? Yeah, so they, they I mean, even before they get on the ship, they, <laughs> they have a, tickets for a ship, and then they're, the ship was delayed by a day and their visa expired, and they couldn't get on the ship. <laughs> and then they had to try to find another ship and try to get a visa extension, and, and they couldn't get one. And so, yeah, the story is like, that's a really like kind of ex exciting story of adventure, and you know, it, it's, uh, it's like, it, I, I still can't believe they made it, and sometimes mm -hmm. I still think that, you know, I remember when I was reading, you know, I was like wondering if they would make it. And I just I don't think your grandmother would take no for an answer. <laughs> it was my grandfather too. My grandmother was like diligent. My mm -hmm. grandfather would do crazy things mm -hmm. to try to make something happen. They had these very different personalities, and I think it worked pretty well, even though they <laughs> sometimes couldn't stand each other. But uh, but they but they uh, so yeah. So they the ship that they went on was called the Navamar, and it was the last ship that was allowed to. Uh, to travel across um, uh, the, the ocean with refugees. It was a freight ship. And uh, when it was written up in the papers, when it, got, it came to New York, it was written up because it was so awful that they called it a floating concentration camp. And I think like if you, any of you saw the exhibits or if you've ever seen pictures, you know, in the concentration camps, they have the three bunks high, stacked up all the way. So they had four holds. In, the, in this freight ship that was supposed to carry like rubber and you know steel rubber, things like that. And they had uh, about like 280 of these um, stacked bunks across under uh, the lowest holds in the ship. And that's where every, you know you would just sleep on this sort of wooden pallet for the journey. And um, the the problem was that uh, there was an outbreak of dysentery mm -hmm. on the ship, and it was you know the sanitary sanitation conditions were terrible, and so I think like a th at least a third of the people got sick, and uh, not everybody survived the journey, and it became impossible to sleep in those quarters, and so people started to gather on deck to just everybody like, squeezing on deck to just get some air mm -hmm. because it was impossible, and my grandmother became absolutely paranoid of like, how will we survive and not get sick and die on this journey? And so that, their journey was, um, you know, it's not like being in a concentration camp, but it was a sort of a taste of what that experience mm -hmm. was like in a shorter time frame. Um, so it was, yeah, it was a memorable, very memorable journey that not everyone made. But. And then what were your father's memories of seeing America for the first time as they sort of it kind of got close to, to yeah, New York. Yeah, you know, and I, honestly, when I read his story, the way he described it, and I will say that I transcribed, I, I, did, I rewrote you know, most of the book, but the parts where he described his journey, I really left quite intact with his observations as they were because they were just, they were so descriptive mm -hmm. and um, I really just didn't want to change it, and it, it, you know, again, and it's from a child's viewpoint, so it was, it had an innocence to it mm -hmm. also. 
you know, there was still a lot of hope um, and awe, too. They didn't come in through Ellis Islands because they were, um, uh, the ship was, because uh, uh, of sickness, they were quarantined ship. So they came in uh, to Brooklyn, to one of the Brooklyn piers, Columbia Pier, I think, in Brooklyn. Um, but when they passed the lower Manhattan, they had come in early in the morning and it was like c covered with a dense fog. And then they saw like these huge steel buildings just coming out of the fog. And I think, I think he said they were like fairy tale giants. Mm. I, actually, I don't know if those were my words or his. Mm. Sometimes I, I don't remember, but that, that's how I describe them at least. That's what it said. But they were, but they, I think they felt like it was like life itself. I think the feeling that they knew they would live, mm -hmm. you know, was the sense they got. And some of the people had all crowded to the front of the ship and some of them dropped to their knees, mm -hmm. and some of them kissed the, the the floor of the ship. Those those are his words, and I mean, obviously, I wasn't there. Mm -hmm. I didn't. But they that sense of like that they had made it mm -hmm. um, is I I I can't possibly imagine that feeling. I tried to convey it as best as I, mm -hmm. I could, but um, you know that's. The thing that I would say, though, is that feeling of relief lasted until they got to a, the shores, and then they were faced with the reality of what they had, which was the $10 they were allowed to take with them mm -hmm. and the one moldy suitcase that had been in the hull of the ship. Mm -hmm. And that it, uh, not to make everyone depressed, mm -hmm. <laughs> this is not my, not my intent, but there is that feeling of like all, all this time they were trying just to get out and just to survive. And then they got there and then they had to start immediately to figure out how the heck are we going to now make it? No English, no money. Mm -hmm. And uh, yeah, and, and yeah. speaking of that, you actually wrote um, that one day after arriving in New York, your father immediately wanted to shed his Germanness and become American. So what yeah. did that mean? Yeah, so, so my father, uh, this was connected to meeting his sponsor. Um, so Ellis, the gentleman who sponsored him, came to take my family on a tour of, of New York. And Ellis was this tall, well-dressed gentleman with horn-rimmed glasses. And his wife, Bessie, was a former Rockettes dancer. And she was beautiful and elegant. And they came with this beautiful white car that was with this beautiful, shiny grill and red leather seats. And they said, we're going to take you downtown. And it took them to Times Square. And my father is sitting in the back in rags. He had the only clothes he had was one pair of pants that came up to here because they weren't allowed to buy clothes when they were in Germany. Uh, so they would have like a used clothing exchange. And my grandmother would sew and sew and try to take in and take out and everything. And my father felt like the immigrant that he was. And they were they had. Uh, uh, somebody had rented them a, a one-room furnished apartment on Pinehurst Avenue in Washington Heights that had like nothing. It had one lamp and a hot plate and one single bed. That was it. And his father slept on the floor the first night. And I think my father felt like the 
refugee that he was in the back of that car, and he saw what America looked like, and he saw what he was, mm. and he realized, I'm not sure if it was that very first day, but he realized very quickly that he needed to become something that he wasn't. And I think that was really his struggle, really, for the rest of his life, is to try to fit in to some place that he never really quite fit, fit in. Mm -hmm. You know, I think when you're a refugee, there's all you carry that with you, no matter how hard you try. Mm -hmm. And you know, you said you know you show up with moldy luggage and ten dollars and clothes that don't fit, um, and so your family, like so many of those who came over, really struggled for a while. Yes. Um, can you talk about some of those struggles? Yeah. So they, so I think anything, one thing I could say is my family had some work ethic. Um, and, uh, and of course they, you know, they gave that to me and my sister. Mm -hmm. We worked really hard our whole lives, but I get, that's good, it's good, it's all good. Uh, but the, uh, with my, my, literally like on day one, they like went and we were like, okay, we gotta get jobs. And they didn't speak any English, so my grandmother, I put elastic on hairnets, and I think she could make like two cents a day. But it was really like, you know, such like just labor. And my grandfather spoke no English at all, and he worked as a pot washer in Sydenham Hospital in 125th Street in the basement. And my father sort of understood that he would work too. He was only 11, but he started to like deliver newspapers and he got a job working in a laundry, delivering laundry, and he got beaten up a few times because I think like the Jewish kids weren't supposed to be on the Irish kids' territory or something like that. So there was a little bit of a territorial thing that, that he got um, uh, caught up in. And they just worked and worked and worked. And then, you know, eventually they were able to afford to move into an actual apartment instead of this, this furnished room that they had. But they, they were, um, they didn't, they moved to an area that wasn't Jewish at all. They were supposed to be in Washington Heights, which was like a German Jewish, I'll call it a ghetto, it wasn't a ghetto, but it was a German Jewish neighborhood. But I think they couldn't really afford to be in like the good part, which, not that it was good, but, so they were like on the outskirts and uh, most of my father's friends were not Jewish. They were Italian, Greek, Irish. It was a great, like a great working class neighborhood. But my grandmother lamented that that he uh, wasn't in touch with his German Jewish roots. And I think, in a way, my grandmother and grandfather were sort of isolated. They were not with. I think I re I realized after I wrote this how important it is. Yes, it's good to assimilate, but it's really important to be around people who share your history so that you're not isolated. And I always felt that part of the reason my grandparents didn't fare so well emotionally was that they did not have strong social connections when they, when they got here. Um, and also my grandmother was, she wasn't such a social, <laughs> not such a social person. Um, but my grandfather really struggles, and and uh, my grandfather had been like the life of the party. He was such a happy, boisterous, fun clown of a guy, and it was almost as if that part of his personality made it almost harder for him to adjust. He just never could learn the language. He he took a night job as a busboy. Um, he felt like he couldn't earn a living for his family. He couldn't get them out of poverty. And um, they, uh, he 
the consequences for him were devastating and led to deep depression and, and worse. Mm -hmm. um, and so, so my father had to sort of take over as the man of the family, and he felt like the weight of the world was on him, that it was up to him to get the family out of, to get them out of this, this hole that they were in. Mm -hmm. They were in a hole, mm -hmm. and he felt it was all up, it was all on his shoulders. Um, so I want to make sure we have some time for um, audience questions, so I'm going to skip around my last few questions, so a little bit out of order here. Um, but I found this one interesting. Um, so your father was not raised very religious. Um, you talked about how he came over here when he was 11. Um, yet six weeks before his 13th birthday, his parents insist he becomes a bar mitzvah. Um, and I'm going to quote this because you said, they guilt him, guilted him into it by saying, we all nearly perished just for being Jewish. You cannot turn your back on your religion. You owe it to all the Jews of the world to keep your heritage and culture alive. So I'm curious as an adult if he embraced his religion. Uh, yeah, they really said that. I mean, they, they tried a few guilt trips on him. They're like, you know, they said your grandmother Ernestine would have been upset if you didn't get married. I mean, they tried everything, and they're like, that was the last thing. You, oh, it's all the Jews in the world. <laughs> I mean, I think, you know, it's funny. They were so, they were pretty secular. Like a lot of Jewish people in Berlin were pretty secular and considered themselves very modern. And my father, this is something I found out, like my father, my, we had a prayer that we went to bed by. My grandmother would tell me this prayer, whatever, doesn't matter. But when I translated into English, I realized that it's a Christian prayer. Oh. <laughs> it's like, Father looks down upon you. It's not, it's not Father, it's the Holy Father. And so I don't think they even realized like how Christian their, their uh, lifestyle was. I mean, it just... You know, and they were just really, I mean, they celebrated the high holy days, you know, but whatever. But, um, uh, but the idea of not being bar mitzvah, like, that's mm -hmm. like, that's just like, you know, you can't do that. But even, um, I think, again, when you come to another country and you're separated from your other Jews, all of a sudden it becomes very important. And there was even, it wasn't even just that. My, my, my grandmother, because my father had all these non-Jewish friends, she was all of a sudden, she was like really worried about that. And she's like, I think you should start going to the, the YMHA, you know, the, the Jewish Y, because you need to get in touch with your J Jewish roots and your German roots and everything. And my father was like, why? I, I just want to become an American. And he changed his name. His given name was Wolf. And he changed it to Jack. And that's a, a, a key part of why the, the, the book is called American Wolf, because that, that was his name. Um, but in terms of how he embraced his religion, I would say he was very ambivalent. Mm. I, that's how I would put it. He believed in God. At home, we celebrated the High Holy Days. He, he never visited Israel, mm. but he believed it was important that mm. there should be an Israel. Mm -hmm. So I always felt like there was this... Um, there was some anger at rabbis in, in, in Berlin who he felt like had encouraged people to stay mm -hmm. and try to make life better there instead of encouraging people to leave. So I think that there was always just this ambivalence is how I would put sure. it. Yeah. 
Um, so I'm only going to ask one more question yeah. before we turn to the audience. So because this is my last question, I'm now jumping way ahead in the book. <laughs> but it would okay. be wrong, I think, not to ask this question because, again, yeah. talking about your book title, um, American Wolf yeah. from Nazi Refugee to American Spy. So um, he grows up, <laughs> and <laughs> um, at 24, he joins the U.S. Army, and he's actually sent back to Germany as part of military intelligence. In fact, basically, he's spying on Russia for Americans. Um, what was it like for him? Yeah, it was, uh, first of all, just going back was amazing because he was homesick in a way for his country. And so he was excited to go back. And then he steps foot on German soil and he takes one look around and he suddenly realized, what if everybody here is a Nazi? Mm -hmm. What if everyone here is anti-Semitic? Mm -hmm. And he is like frozen with this fear that he never occurred to him. And then the only thing that really saves him is, is his American uniform. He was really proud to be an American soldier, and he felt like it protected him. It was like armor. And then after a few weeks, he starts to get used to it, and he realizes that, oh, these are German. They're people. They're just people. <laughs> you know. So he was, um, he, he was really okay with it after a while. And he, I think he found himself, it was, First of all, he felt kind of cool being a spy. Mm -hmm. You know, he's a very James Bondy type job, and uh, uh, he—it uh, was his way of coming to terms with his hybridness. Like mm -hmm. he tried to become American, but that nah, didn't quite stick. He knew he was a, a German. A lot of people in America rejected that. He realized he was a little bit of everything. Mm -hmm. He was American. He was Jewish. He was German. That's what he was going to be. People back home, when he went, finally went back, were going to have to accept him for, for who he was. And he couldn't really hide any of those parts of himself. Mm -hmm. And so he was a coming to terms with, with his past and his presence. Mm -hmm. I, I will say for um, those of you, I, I encourage everyone to buy the book, but the stories of him as a spy and being back in Germany and, and things he got to experience again, it was, a, it was a really great part of the book for me. I really enjoyed it. Um, let's go to the audience. We're just going to ask that you wait for a staff member to bring you a microphone so that it's captured on the camera. There's a right here. Whatever happened to his sister married the Chinese, mm -hmm. and as far as family resemblance, do you resemble your grandparents at all? <laughs> um, I do think I look like my dad a little bit, and I think that he resembles his father, Arthur, who I did not get a chance to meet. He died when my father was 20. Um, but yes, there is a resemblance in mm -hmm. here. <laughs> There's a resemblance, yes. It's in there. I don't have my, my grandfather's ears, which mm -hmm. were very prominent, <laughs> luckily. But, and then you asked about the sister. The sister, the sister yes. Yeah. Um, so my, my aunt, um, Ended up during the Blitz, she and her husband um, moved to Iowa because he still was um, uh, being sponsored by the <coughs> Shanghai Shek government to continue his studies. So they moved to the University of, of Iowa and he continued studying engineering there. And she uh, remained married to him but desperately was trying to get the marriage annulled. Um, and eventually, after many years of resistance on his part, she was able to, um, to end that, that marriage. Um, but it was a, she had a very difficult um, 
It's a very, very difficult story that I wish I could know more about. Unfortunately, she's not with us anymore. Any other questions? Uh, how did your uh, grandfather learn English? My grandfather, unfortunately, never really learned anything more than the most rudimentary English. And it really uh, was the biggest problem in terms of him being able to have any kind of career success. He tried to become a waiter, but he couldn't get the orders right. He kept mi mixing them up, and he got fired from that position. And the most he was able to get to was busboy. That was the best he could do. And it was very humiliating for him and led to, to a great deal of depression. Are there other questions? I'm sorry, but did they ever see the camps? So they were not in the camps, but we a lot of our relatives um, it didn't make it out. You know, like my uh, my uncle and um, an aunt and several other people who 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 didn't get their visas in time ended up um, on transports uh, headed east. Most of those people weren't in camps, but were shot on arrival. And my father, uh, this is something he never knew, but uh, he, he never knew what happened to some people, like his, his, his best friends in Germany that he kind of wandered around with when there was no school. Um, one of his other cousins, um, they, they ended up in the camps. And, and huge towns, you know, when I researched this, um, in where my mother's family, my grandmother's family grew up, the, the, like the whole town is basically all ended up in Auschwitz. When he was um, back in Germany serving as yes. part of the U.S. Army, do you know if he ever toured any of the camps? I don't think that he did, no. I saw it right over here. Thank you for coming here. Um, do you know if the Jewish community in New York welcomed, as the people were coming in from, um, in hordes evidently, were they welcomed and uh, embraced by the Jewish community that was already here? You know, that's such a good question. I'm glad you asked that because I think it was uh, sort of mixed. So there was this, um, God help us, but there was this mixed feeling that um, the Eastern European Jews didn't like the German Jews. They felt that the German Jews were uh, a little like hoity-toity, you know, that they considered themselves superior. And when my, my grandmother worked in a a sweatshop for a while, uh, making, you know, doing some, you know, piecework uh, for seamstress piecework. And she said that her was her impression that the Eastern European Jews were calling her names because there was this dislike of each other. So, um, and my father actually, when he met my mother, who's my mother was American born, but uh, her family. Um, really didn't like that my father was German. There was so much anti-German sentiment. Uh, so much so that when my father on the schoolyard was called a Nazi because you know we were at war with the Germans. That's not a Jewish question, but that's, a, that's just a, all of the different things that my father faced in terms of different types of prejudices from every angle he felt like he was getting it, you know. Um, it, it was, you know, it was, <laughs> 
was rough, rough times. So, but I think again within the community of Washington Heights, if you were in that community of German Jewish, I think there was, I think that would have been a good place to be. They weren't quite, they weren't quite there. Um, oh, this one right here. First of all, first of all, thank you for your book and for being here. Um, secondly, do you have a perspective of what could have been done early on in the 30s to mitigate, or I mean, was there anything that, in retrospect, you believe that could have been done, or that in parallel in today's rise of anti-Semitism can be done to minimize or combat that? That's a good question, mm -hmm. and oh boy, if I had the answer to that, mm -hmm. that'd be great. I mean, I think the, the biggest thing is education, right? I mean, I think the, uh, I think that's why we're here, that's why we have these displays, that's why though it should be in the schools. Mm -hmm. uh, I was amazed to find out that uh, many, many states in this country have no Holocaust curriculum at all, not even New York State. Um, so I think the fact that it's not clearly being taught as a part of history is dangerous when people don't have the education. It's so easy for lies to then take, uh, take over. Uh, so I would have to say, even though there's a much bigger answer mm -hmm. to your question that I, I can't even begin to start, I think at least we have to start there because they certainly do that in Germany. They mm -hmm. start with telling the truth, making sure people understand what happened. So you know, hopefully then uh, it could be prevented. Mm -hmm. We're going to go to one last audience question. It's right here. So you mentioned that your dad became a spy. And I know we all want to buy the book to get all those stories. Mm -hmm. But could you give us just a little teaser mm -hmm. about his uh, spying? Yeah, so he, he worked for the mission. And the mission uh, is was an above ground, in other words, not undercover, uh, spying thing that all the countries were doing. So it was basically, uh, you know, England had a mission and France had a mission. And so he was in the American mission. He was stationed in, in Potsdam in East Germany. And they were supposed to surveil um, uh, what the Russians and East Germans were doing, what equipment they had, what, op uh, what army operations they were doing, because they clearly uh, in the Korean War had seemed to be surpassing us in terms of their technology. So he was, you know, photographing things, uh, you know, not in, it was in daylight, but I mean, it's not like they, they were supposed to know, but, uh, but there was an understanding that this was being done and everybody was trying to gain as much intelligence as they could. Um, and it was all working out until uh, at some point he, he got caught doing it, and then he really thought he was going to be made to disappear. So he had an, a very close encounter uh, with a tank, <laughs> and then, and then um, uh, I don't, again, I don't want to give it all away, but I will say that uh, it was uh, a scary moment with a lot of sweat and fear, and he got, he got expelled um, from, uh, from East Germany. But it all ended up okay. Uh, uh, but it was a little, a little hairy, a little bit of a hairy time. Uh, so I would like to wrap up with one yeah. final question of my own. 
Um, I was wondering if you knew if your father had any key messages about the Holocaust that he wanted people to know. I think that um, that's the hardest question that you've asked. Mm. And, um, I think he was afraid. I don't think it was that it was a message that he wanted to know, but I feel like I'm going to answer it a little bit differently, which is that I think my father unfortunately lived in fear that something like this could always happen again. I think it was ingrained upon him the sense that we had to be prepared always, that maybe we'd have to run again. Mm. He lived like that. So I feel like it wasn't so much that he had a message about it. It was, I mean, he felt lucky. He, I knew he felt lucky. He was lucky that he knew he was lucky to have gotten out. He knew he was lucky to be alive. He appreciated life. But on the underside of that was the sense that anything could happen at any time, and we always had to be prepared. And um, I, I think inadvertently, I think he passed it on to my sister and I. Mm -hmm. You know, so we think we have a little bit of that in us all the time. But that was a little bit of a legacy mm -hmm. of that. So it's not exact answer. No, I think to your that's question, a great answer. I feel like that's a, that's the honest truth. Right. That's a great answer. Um, so I want to thank all of you for coming. Obviously, thank Audrey for coming. Thank you all. Thank you so much. Copies of American Wolf can be purchased through the Reagan Library Museum Store. Every purchase you make through our catalog, website, or museum store is a critical component to our success. In short, your purchase supports our efforts to extend the legacy of President Ronald Reagan. Purchases can be made at reaganlibrary.com store. To find a listing of all upcoming events, please visit reaganfoundation.org events. Thank you for listening. For more information on the Ronald Reagan Presidential Foundation and Institute, including information on how to become a member, information on upcoming exhibits at the Reagan Library, and more information on the legacy of President Reagan, please visit reaganfoundation.org. And don't forget to like and follow the Reagan Foundation on all social media platforms. Until next week, thanks for listening, and God bless you. Don't forget to subscribe to A Reagan Forum podcast in your iTunes or Google Play stores and on other podcast platforms as they become available. New episodes of A Reagan Forum come out every Thursday like what you hear? Check out our Words to Live By podcast, featuring radio addresses and speeches Ronald Reagan delivered from the 1960s through the 1980s. New episodes drop every Tuesday. And don't forget to follow at Ronald Reagan on Facebook, at Ronald Reagan on Twitter, and Reagan Foundation on YouTube. Also, search for us on SoundCloud and Stitcher.